welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Today, my topic is the narcopath, which represents the narcissistic sociopath and narcissistic psychopath, sort of a combo comorbidity thing. So I'm going to talk about narcopaths, and I'm going to talk about how they have a false self, and they believe themselves to be God. So false self, false God. So it's nothing greater than a person with a God complex, right? (laughs) So pathological narcissism can be considered as a systemic reaction to trauma that has caused the child to freeze and sort of become ossified at a young age. They're paralyzed. They are frozen in time at that period, at that juncture of time where where they experienced this, this trauma that had this effect on them. It's kind of like an evil spell, a curse that was cast on them, paralyzing them. Um, Their interactions with the world are really sort of like a four-year-old or maybe a six-year-old, eight-year-old at best. That's probably no older than eight. They, one of the main features of a narcopath is that they create an imaginary false self in response to the early childhood trauma that they've experienced. And in many ways, this imaginary compensatory version of themselves is like a religion, if you think about it. It is everything the true self is not. This false self is perfect, omniscient, omnipresent, all those things that are godlike. It's protective, powerful, um, indomitable. The attributes of this false self are kind of like a religion where the child invents God. This flawless creation is not real and reflects the constructs that the narcopath wants to believe for himself, you know, as the truth, which in reality is far from the truth. It's, it is illusion and delusion and just being really gone down the rabbit hole but the narcopath wants to believe it is true and wants to project this truth, this false truth, to the world. And uh, let me just put a little note about my use of the word narcopath. That's not technically a real word that a mental health professional would use, but I'm not a mental health professional. Um, I have a degree with, with a lot of guidance and counseling uh, psychology focus, as my minor, and I have um, a deep understanding of this from my own personal journey and talking to many, many people over a period now uh, that seems like forever. (laughs) And narcopath is, I didn't make that up, it's it's sort of um, a below-the-radar term that is being used. Um, Not everybody likes the use of the word narcopath, but to me it's perfect because even though my husband was diagnosed as most likely cluster B personality disorder, it was uncertain which one. 
of those cluster B personality disorders because many of the characteristics overlap. They share commonalities. It's kind of like it's on a spectrum. And narcissism is on the shallow end and uh, psychopathy is on the dark end, the deep end of it, Uh, more like, um, you know, a sadist and criminal types or sometimes that. But it's kind of on a spectrum. So a lot of times there's comorbidities. There's the narcissist and they share sociopath and psychopath tendencies or characteristics. Um, And, you know, you could do percentages like, well, there's 60% narcissist and 20% sociopath, maybe with a little bit of sprinkling of psychopathy, but they also have comorbidities of addiction to certain things and, um, you know, maybe other things also in addition to that. Maybe they're codependent or whatever. So um, I don't want to get stuck on terms, and I'm not trying to defend my use of narcopath. It just seems to me it's a good word that sort of encompasses maybe all that they are that is beyond just a plain generic person with narcissistic personality disorder. So I hope that um, sort of, explains my use of the word narcopath. So back to what we're talking about, this false self and this false God. The false self is God to the narcopath. He has vacated himself. He is absent and there's just no one there. But the need to fill this emptiness or this void catalyzes or it is the impetus, you know, for this quest to fashion himself in the image of something that, uh, and, and then when he, when he has um, fabricated this false self, then he cannot feel pain or fear or abandonment or emptiness because he is filled with this false persona. So we need to kind of understand that. Now there's something called object constancy, which is super important when we talk about, a person with narcissistic personality disorder or any of those cluster B uh, dysregulated, disordered thinking. It originates from the concept of object permanence, which is a cognitive skill centering around the understanding that objects, here's what it is, objects continue to exist even when they cannot be seen, touched or sensed or experienced in any way. So if a person has experienced early attachment trauma or has some kind of inconsistent or emotionally unavailable caregiver, or maybe even just a chaotic, traumatic childhood that was abusive or neglectful and their emotional development becomes stunted and interrupted and frozen at this very fragile age, so they never develop this thing called object constancy. It's kind of like why we play peekaboo. You put a blanket over your head and suddenly you're gone. And then you pop out and it's like, huh, I'm still there. I'm still here. You know, uh, you do that with your, with your child. Um, it's to teach them this. And there's so many things that the narcissist uh, or cluster B person has not been taught. They haven't seen it. They haven't witnessed it. They haven't been taught it. They haven't experienced it. 
How do they know what it is? Think about that. How do you know what something is if you've never seen it? You've never experienced it or felt it. Uh, you know, you don't, right? As a consequence of this lack of object constancy, they vacillate and go back and forth very easily um, and are heavily dependent on sort of the mood of the moment. It's very changeable, very fluid and mercurial. So um, pathological narcissism is a reaction to this deficient bonding and dysfunctional attachment to their primary caregiver when they were little. And it typically remains both infantile and chaotic throughout their entire lives because here again, it's been ossified, calcified. Um, uh, it's turned to stone. They have been turned to stone, uh, paralyzed, frozen, whatever words you want to choose to describe this image. I want you to try to see that in your mind's eye that, that this dysregulated person whether they're frozen in their solid ice or whether they've been, um, uh, you know, ossified or calcified or turned to stone, uh, either way, they're immobile. They're, they no longer are a sentient, uh, uh, ha they don't have a sentient core uh, at this point because they are uh, essentially dead uh, because they're encased in stone or ice, or metal, or steel, or something. There's this, this, this impenetrable thing that surrounds them. So whatever fragile, authentic self might have been encapsulated in this, in this um, barrier within these, these walls of ice or stone, you know, it's not coming out. It, can't, it, it may not even still even have a heartbeat. It could just be mummified and dead in there. And, and so I want you to picture this image when you're thinking about your narcissist or sociopath or psychopath, that it's not like they're functioning in, with, with a real authentic self or sense of self, uh, and they're not functioning with a real healthy working brain or brain chemicals or electrical neural pathways that are that are functioning and normal. I mean, this is a person who is impaired, who is ill, who cannot, they can, it's not a choice. They cannot uh, see the world that as you see it, or as normal people do, and they cannot be functioning with the emotions that normal neurotypical people function with. They're incapable of it. It's not, a, it's not that they're choosing to be mean or selfish. I don't think so. Uh, I, some of them may have more awareness of what's going on with themselves. Some of them are aware that every relationship ends up to be a dumpster fire. And they are aware that they have a, a you know, carnage behind them where there's just uh, death and destruction with every relationship they've ever had. Some of them have a level of intelligence and self-awareness where they, they do realize this, but they don't understand why. And they blame the victims. A lot of the time they shift that blame and, and they're just, you know, their attitude is why do all these people fail me? Why does it always go bad? It's not my fault. I'm a good guy. I'm a sweet guy. I'm a, I'm a wonderful guy. 
why did all of these people treat me so mean? So back to object constancy. <laughs> Sorry, I ramble sometimes. My students sometimes tell me that. Um, okay, so without the ability to see people as whole and constant, these are the key words. If they can't experience people as whole and constant, it becomes difficult to remember a loved one when they're not physically present. Um, the feeling of being left on their own can become so powerful and overwhelming that it evokes some kind of raw, intense, childlike reaction. They are triggered by abandonment, feelings of abandonment. This requires this narcopath to invent this alternative reality to create these confabulations that are dissociated from reality. And they live in a world that does not resemble anything like where a neurotypical normal person would, would live. To compensate for this inability to relate to real people, they invent something called surrogate objects, which are sometimes called appliances, you know, because really these, these relationships they have with people, these people in, that are partnering with the narcopath are little more than just appliances, like a cell phone or a toaster or, um, you know, some, you know, a blender, something like that. They're just an appliance. And while they're providing good service, uh, they are cherished and treated well. And then as soon as something breaks on them or they become cumbersome in some way or a newer model is, is released, then they don't have any interest in it. They'll just toss that appliance into the junk heap, drop it off at Goodwill in the donation basket and um, be on their merry way because there's, there's no uh, true connection or bonding with their partners. So um, it's no wonder that they are incapable of responding to any real person or authentic emotion. Those things don't live in their reality. Only twisted avatars of real people. They're just avatars of real people. They don't see. It's like they take a snapshot. I've, I've, I've read this in numerous places. The way that the narcissist brain works, they don't see you as a real multidimensional person who they can love and feel disappointed or frustrated with all at the same time. They don't, they can't feel two things at once. So they just take a picture of you and in their mind, you are that cardboard cutout, very one dimensional, very black and white, very uh, without depth or feeling or realness without any humanness. And you're just like an avatar of a real person. You're a fantasy created by their magical thinking. When, when they first meet you in the first few months or even years, they believe they're so infatuated that they idealize you and think, wow, you are the solution to all of my troubles. You're going to fix everything and every, you know, you're, it's going to be great. But then they don't even really see you as a person. And so this infatuation and idealization is, 
is on a level of like an eight-year-old, how they would have puppy love or say that they're in love with somebody. They don't know what that is. They're not capable of knowing what unconditional, true, uh, grown-up love, un, you know, what that is. They don't, an eight-year-old doesn't know that. And that's what the narcissist is. In my marriage to my narcopath, um, I can think of one extraordinary example of this acting out. Um, and at the end of a day, it was like the day he did it, he perceived as a betrayal and failure on my part. I had become ill the night before uh, ACL, which is this big music festival in Austin that only comes once a year. And he had to go alone because I was sick. And this caused a narcissistic injury, which I won't get into right now, but it's a thing. And so out of sight, out of mind, he went there and he navigated through a whole day of concerts and drinking and drugging and half naked girls dancing around and, and, and never thought of me at home alone with a high fever and really sick. Um, in fact, Instead of worrying about me or even thinking about me, he was angry with me that I had failed to make his day more enjoyable by being his partner there at ACL and that I ruined his fun by not accompanying him. So the things that he did to punish me when he re returned home that night will go in the books as the most horrific transgression of our entire 15-year marriage. And there's no doubt that he felt justified and entitled to commit these horrible transgressions due to my failure to failure to function properly as appliances must do. That's messed up, isn't it? He becomes the victim when he's not, uh, you know. So attachment and bonding aren't the same thing either. Narcissists and narcopaths have avoidant attachment styles and maintain distance in relationships. They are ill-equipped to deal with real-life situations or expectations, so they manage to live by another set of rules entirely. None of it is rational, and their maladapted and dysregulated brains cannot ever see things as they really are. Their authentic self was effectively extinguished in early childhood, like we spoke of earlier, and they are little more than a reflection of those partners that they mirror in order to appear like a normal, healthy person. It's not real. They just mirror us. Um, they're only acting the part. And boy, boy, oh boy, are they great actors chameleons, shapeshifters, oh my gosh. Even if they remain in long-term relationships or marriages, they often seek new fuel supply in people, things, or their jobs. Um, their hunger for admiration and attention and adoration is just endless. It's a bottomless pit that can never be filled. It can never be enough to satisfy them. The person with this personality disorder um, illness must constantly seek fuel in the form of complete attention, affection, all of that, and therefore almost always has to maintain additional people outside of their primary relationship just to sustain their insatiable need for validation. 
certainly happened in my marriage. I didn't know what that was when it was, I was witnessing it happening a lot of the time right in front of me, things he would do with girls and, you know, different females that we would encounter when we were, I didn't know what that was, but I, I know what it is now. The narcopath may have comorbidities and often they're addicted to porn and, um, Things like that. Pornography is so often, especially with the somatic narcissist, it's a it's like a centerpiece of their lives and a prelude to actual cheating. And and that's the progression. And that's definitely what happened in my marriage. It went from porn addiction to real people eventually. Um, they may maintain a harem and have several side pieces. Um so people with cluster B personality disorders do not have the capacity to bond. They may appear to be deeply attached to you, but they can't take your needs into consideration. They just can't. They feel incredibly violated or put upon by being asked to do anything they don't want to do. And their concept of the people in their lives reflects very black or white thinking. Either their partner is absolutely perfect and idealized and they're infatuated with her, or they are irreparably flawed beyond repair and there's no middle ground. Regular people realize that you can hold space for different feelings and emotions for the same person at one time. You know, they understand it's possible to love someone and cherish their partners and at the same time be angry with them or disappointed in them or frustrated with them or even bored with them. That happens, right? And you don't just bail ship when you have those feelings. The narcissist cannot feel more than this one emotion at a time and they cannot feel attachment and, and things like that are disappointing at the same time simultaneously. So during a fight, when people with narcissistic personality disorder get mad at you, they see you as an enemy or traitor, and they forget all of the past positive feelings for you completely, just like they never existed. And that's mind blowing. It really is. Another important thing to know is that there's no connection between IQ and conscientiousness. You know, some of the smartest people in the world have no empathy, have no soul. Just because a person is intelligent doesn't mean they're self-reflective or self-aware. Being intelligent doesn't make you compassionate or, or merciful or kind or genuine. The dysregulated person cannot embody in action the things they may know cognitively and there is no implementation thus there is a disconnect they compartmentalize everything and put them in put them away in little drawers little cubby holes and keep them all very separate and everyone um you know they just do this and they don't experience authentic emotions personality disordered people are often really smart they're creative, charismatic, and cunning. They are often quite successful due to these traits. Coupled with their lack of morals and ethics, you know, you can go far in this world if you have no morals and ethics and you're charming and you're smart and creative. Wow, what a, what a powerful combination to get you to the top. You know, you don't care who you step on or who you 
destroy on the way up. You just want to get there and you'll do anything unethical or um, unscrupulous to do it. In many ways, they're like small children. Consider like the temper tantrum. If they didn't get properly socialized between ages two and four, they can be quite antisocial in one way or another. If this socialization is not substantiated by the age of four, it's unlikely to ever happen. Narcissism is on a spectrum, and there are many cadres, uh, cadres and categories of, of narcissism. The important thing that they all have in common is that they're dangerous and delusional. Their worldview in no way represents anything real. The way that an individual with a personality disorder is able to function with profound character deficits marked by actual brain abnormalities is a subject worthy of future study. Uh, researchers in recent studies have used MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, to um, scan the brains of individuals who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. And they have found that these people who have NPD, sociopathy, and psychopathy, they have less gray matter in the part of their cerebral cortex called the left anterior insula. The left anterior insula is involved with cognitive functioning and the regulation of emotion, specifically the creation of compassion and empathy. And then when you factor in the amygdala and the limbic system and other regions of the brain that are also reflect, you know, affected by disorders like this, then of course it's very, very serious. Um, details of different studies have been done and um, that prove this. In the Journal of Psychiatric Research recently, they did studies on this to confirm it, that that is true, what I'm telling you. The narcopath truly sees himself or herself as a supreme being far above the rest of us. They have replaced their traumatized, fearful, angry, broken, authentic self with a false self that transforms them into all powerful masters of the universe. They have silenced their true self in ways that are akin to murder. What has replaced it is incapable of genuine feeling or emotion. They believe they are God and they worship at their own deserted temple on bloody knees with visions of a world that does not exist. I wrote that. I wrote a line similar to that in a poem. Um, yeah, I write poetry. And I talked about how narcissists worship deserted temples on bloody knees with sacrificial lambs. And, and there's a world that doesn't exist. There's something divinely tragic in the creation of a person with a cluster B personality disorder. You know, I tried to worship the false god of Ben is what I call it that made my husband superhuman with superpowers. And he did seem to have some superhuman superpowers, but you know, he's not God. And he felt that he was in many ways as a devoted supplicant. I could never praise him or deify him well enough. There is no space for anyone else at the top 
I'm sure it must be a lonely place, but like all predators, they love the summit. You know, they go to the highest place in the room, the highest place in the jungle, in the forest, because of the view it affords them. And as predators, they want to oversee everything beneath them. They are a breed unlike any other with this false self, and they worship the false god that is them, the god of ego and the god of delusion. If you enjoyed this article today that I shared with you, please follow me on medium.com where you will find nearly a hundred articles like this one. And I also have a podcast channel here that you're on with quite a few podcasts, maybe about 60 or 70 of those. I also have a video blog. So you can look it up by NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, or by my name. I also have a website, www.narctroopers.com. And there you can find links to all of these things. Thank you for being here today. Please share this with people that you think would benefit from having a deeper understanding of what this is. There's a lot of misinformation, misunderstandings out there, and even professional mental health people, many of them are not trained and do not have the understanding um, that they need to have on this subject. You know, just a degree doesn't qualify you for some things. And so um, there is a need There is a need for a deeper and broader understanding of personality disorders because, I don't know, it seems to me like they're increasing and there's more and more people that have them. Okay, so on that horrible note, (laughs) let's have a a, a be healthy, be safe, and um, keep your hope going. We're going to get there. Bye-bye. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.